Amen. Hey, that's right. We are into Intro to Apologetics. And uh, once again, uh, Rebecca, yay, she's a little servant tonight. If you could take that exciting workbook and if you could transfer it over there to our fellow Canadian graduate, a.k.a. Jordan, that would really help him out there. So he doesn't have to use his imagination. That's right, because... He's done with school. So uh, anyway, but uh, we are once again on the topic of evil and suffering there in chapter 7. For those of you hooked on pages, that would be page 62. That's right, Holly, as we begin our recap. Hey, give it for Holly. Tom, you didn't tell me that Holly was a master chef. No, wrong answer, Tom. That could lead to a long car ride home. No, so you say, absolutely, Pastor Billy. No, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we're in John Apologetics, page 62. That's right, and we've been seeing, uh, dealing with skeptical questions, right? Uh, and people always want to be skeptical about God's existence. So we've already dealt with everything has a beginning, which implies a beginner, i.e. God. Everything has a design, which implies a designer, i.e. God. Well, what about evolution or evolution, whatever you want to call it? Uh, no, that's not true. It's bankrupt, and we took a 42-week detour on that going really deep in then we came back says, no, here's another argument for the existence of God. Everything has morals. Where'd that come from? Moral lawgiver, i.e. God. And then people say, well, okay, yeah, what about the Bible? Don't you know the Bible is just a book whooped up by man full of contradictions and errors, and it's no different than any other? No, that's not true, as we went into that uh, big time. Then people come out and they throw out the little card, so to speak, as if they got you. Aha, Christian, God can't be real because there's evil and suffering. That's what we're on uh, the skeptic there. Now, page 62 is a recap. We saw that this is a, actually a good question. It's not a question that you should run from or shy away from. Even the biblical authors, they ask the question, God, why? Why am I going through this? Anybody ever ask that? All right, the rest of you are lying. Uh, but anyway, so we'll move on. Uh, but we saw that, hey, listen, first of all, God's not the author of suffering, okay? Satan is, okay? Evil, okay? It came from him, not from God. Uh, number two, we saw the Christian response is, hey, listen, God's not up there wringing his hands just wishing he could do something. He's already done something about it. We saw that he's already judged it. He put a limit on it. He made a way out of it. And he appointed a day called Judgment Day when he's going to put an end to it. And that's good news, okay? And then we flipped it around and says, okay, fine. So that's you coming at me saying, oh, ha, ha, we got you, Christian. There is no God because of that. And I just gave you an answer that explained it, okay? But let's flip it around for you. Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, Christian science, Unitarians, just to name a few. What's your version of why is there evil and suffering? And they say, oh, it's just an illusion. Really? So you're going to tell that to somebody who got raped? Or somebody's family who got murdered. It's just an illusion. And I got a problem. Then we saw the atheists. They're the ones that, aha, we got you now. Actually saying that there is no God based on the belief that there is evil versus good proves the existence of God. It goes back to the moral argument. How could you say that there's a good uh, or evil uh, unless there's a universal moral law inside of us letting us know that? And then so it actually proves the existence of God. And then we say, okay, well, fine, then flip it around. Uh, not only proves the existence of God, the very fact that you would actually make that claim, okay, what's your answer? As we saw before, as gross as it is, this is the bottom line with evolution. This is why it spawns so much evil, that the reason why there is evil is just because no reason at all. You attack me and say, I have no reason, and it disproves God when it proves God, and I give you lots of reasons what God is up to. But the only reason you can come up with this is it's just completely a blind, pitiless chance, and we're just a bag of chemicals dancing with DNA. And that's what you're going to explain to somebody who's suffering in the hospital or with rape? What? And I'm the one with the problem? I don't think so. Then we saw last time, we saw well, the big question is, well, wait a second. If God knows everything, and he does, okay, and if he knows the beginning from the end, and he does, okay, then he knew that this world would be a world that ultimately Adam and Eve would sin and suffering and evil would result, not from God, but from man's rebellion from Satan, right? So why did he do it? 
Why did God allow this world, if he knew all this stuff would happen, happen? Well, we saw because because when you take a look at it logically, if you're going to have a world where you're going to have a true loving relationship, you have to have the ability to have free choice, right? And in order for love to happen, you have to choose to reciprocate that love. My daughter, Rebecca, twice in one study. That's right, because you're sitting on the front row. Learn the lesson, young one, now. Okay? Uh, and, uh, but uh, uh, I'm her father. She should love me, right? She came from me and from mom. And, uh, uh, but when does it become a true loving relationship? When she chooses of her own free will to say, yes, I love you in return. So if we're going to have a world where creatures can have true love with a creator, i.e. God, then you have to have that true free will. In order for true free will to take place, then you have to have the ability to not just say yes and be a robot. You have to have the ability to say no. Unfortunately, they said no. Okay, so in order for us to have that kind of a relationship, this is the best possible rule for that. Okay, but again, it doesn't mean it ends, oh no, it's, all, it's not always going to be this way. God judged it, he put a limit on it, he's made a way out of it, praise God through Jesus Christ, and one day it's going to cease. Okay, so God wins. Now, we're on the chapter 8, kind of part 2 was suffering, and now we're going to take a look at reasons why. Okay, reasons why God not only allows suffering, but we're going to take a look and dispel kind of where we left off last time, is that did you know that not all suffering is bad? Did you know that lots of good can result because, yes, of suffering? Okay, so we need to dispel that on the back side of that. Let's take a look there at the top of the page. 16 suggestions on how to better understand suffering and evil from the Christian point of view. Okay, again, from the atheist point of view, from evolution, what's your reason? Uh, nothing. Okay, and I'm the one with problems? Don't think so. Number one, suffering is not always evil. Okay, suffering is not always evil. Often it's a good thing in the human experience and the essential for our survival, right? For instance, have you ever watched a butterfly struggling to get free from a cocoon, right? It's a Saturday afternoon, cable went out, NBA playoffs are over, there's no food in the house, right? You can't even find Monopoly. So what do you do? You go outside and you watch the butterfly. Uh, anybody ever do that? Okay. Right? But that's exactly... Hey, thank you. Thank you, uh, Jay. Anyway, so... And it says, but listen, if you look at that, if you ever were at that point in your life, pretty low, but anyway, so... <laughs> uh, you look... Hey, the butterfly's not having a good time, is he? Have you ever seen those nature shows in all seriousness? Okay. In fact, it looks like it's what? Struggling, right? But... If you feel sorry for it, if you intervene, if you tear that cocoon and open and set the butterfly free, it's going to what? Die. It needs that process. Okay, and that's just one easy example. The struggle, underline this word, strengthens the butterfly. The struggle what? What's it do to the butterfly? Strengthens the butterfly so it can what? Survive. How many guys would say that surviving beats the alternative when you're trying to continue on in life? Yeah, okay. So it was good. So is that evil? That, oh, no, what kind of a universe is this? This is horrible. No, he needs that. Okay, to help develop uh, with the wings and things of that nature. Another easy example, not just with the example of the butterfly, okay, another one is easy, is with uh, trees. Okay, and I remember when I was pastoring in Northern California, and this uh, uh, gardens groundskeeper guy, uh, he was out there, and we were plant, trying to do some, uh, plant some trade she uh, shade trees. Okay, or trade cheese, you know, whatever you'd like to buy on the market nowadays. You can get everything at Walmart. Um, but anyway, uh, shade trees, okay? Seashells on the seashore with Peter Piper. Anyway, so, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so they're probably about yay high, right? And whatever, and just a little teeny little saplings right there. And so, uh, so we came there and we, you know, you got to stake it, right? And then you got to tie the stuff around it to keep the wind from whatever. So when we were initially doing it, we were like cinching it up, you know, just right up against that, right? And so, and, 
our minds, we're thinking like, that's what you got to do because you don't want it to break and say, and the guy says, no, 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 no. He said, actually, if you do that, you're going you're to kill a tree. A what? Right? Because you think, well, no, it's got to be nice and tight and can't move. He says, no, because you got to have a little play. Right? You, gotta, you can't have it next to the wood. You've got to have a little bit of play so that it'll go back and forth. It's not going to you know, have no support, but it's got to have some play. And he says, because that's actually that play, moving back and forth is what strengthens the tree and forces the roots to go down deeper so that when it grows, it has a good root base and it won't fall over in a major storm. Oh, right? And so out of that, it's like, if you don't learn, even as a Christian, if you don't bend, you're going to break. And so sometimes God has us tossed to and fro, but he's got his little tether, right? He's not going to let you go all the way, but you got to trust him that he knows what he's doing. And part of that struggling is so that you can dig deep roots in him, right? Because one thing that keeps you praying to God, one thing that keeps you humble as a Christian, one thing that keeps you dependent on Jesus Christ is, guess what? Easy living. No, it's hard done. So he'll allow a little bit of wind here, a little bit of wind there, a little bit there. And what's he doing? He's destroying you. No, he's not. He's getting you to dig deep roots so that when a major thing comes, you can handle it. You can stand, right? So that's easy. Butterfly, tree. Another one is this one. How many guys like fire? Stay away from Bobby uh, and pray for him later. Okay, that's a little too much enthusiasm, Bobby. Uh, but uh, anyway, and get away from the cameras, will you? But no, <laughs> you're expensive. So fire, right? How many guys just love it when you're sitting around a fire and right, and you're doing the marshmallow schmore thing, right? Whoever they came up with that thing, right? And you said, you know what? This is boring. I'm just going to put my hand over it. <sighs> get it crispy. Yeah. No. How many guys glad that when you get near fire, whether it's your hand or any body part, that something has a natural reaction. It's called your nerves. That's right, Mr. Toes. You called your nerves, okay? And they respond very quickly uh, to that, and it makes you don't do that so you don't have crispy hands. How many guys hate crispy hands? Right. Crispy cream all day long. Crispy hands, don't do it. Okay, don't recommend it. Okay, uh, no, right? So how many guys glad that that worked? So is that bad that God designed us to have nerve endings that worked at not just with fire or pain or stuff like that? And, so, and did you know, we talked about this before, did you know there were actually people who have problems with their bodies with nerve damage, that they actually have to be careful even in taking a bath. They can literally scald themselves because they can't feel if the water's too hot, right? So that's not bad. It's not bad to have a reaction, you know, against fire and things of that nature. How many guys are so glad that when you were growing up, okay, and you were out in the street, okay, and uh, you were doing your thing, and that mom and dad, they saw that there was a vehicle coming about two blocks down, headed your way, going super fast, Okay, how many guys are glad that mom and dad went, get out of the road, and screamed at you, maybe even yelled at you, right? And you still didn't even see it coming, but the very fact that they screamed at you, which you thought, oh, no, they found what I did in my room. No, <laughs> that wasn't what it is. They trying to get you out of the way of the car, right? You might be glad, right? Now, initially, it was like, ah, but he might be glad about that, right? Yeah, okay. In fact, Bill, did I tell you about Billy dancing on the carpet one time in New York? Oh, that was wild. I guess this goes along with the diet corn from last week. Okay, he's in New York. Well, how old was he? About three or four? Yeah, he was still in his diapers. He's not here tonight. I can talk. Uh, <laughs> he'll kill me when he gets older. But he's out there. We're inside the house, right? And we just got done putting new carpet in the house. And so all the old carpet in New York, they let you put anything out by the street, and they let you come pick it up. You don't have to go to the dump or stuff like that, uh, by and large. And so there was rolls and rolls of carpet all out by the street. And we lived at, the, at an intersection, a major intersection right here in the, in the neighborhood there. So there's a lot of traffic, you know. And so we're inside the house. And uh, the day before, we had gone to Burger King. 
And he got one of those hats, one of those crown things, right? And so he loved that crown, right? Three years old, he's got his crown, big green crown, right? And so, but, uh, and so next thing you know, we're inside the house. All of a sudden, I hear horns going off like that. And then I hear people go, yeah, whoa, yeah. And I go, whoa, what's going on? Because right next door, there was like a, a high school, and they used to play football games. And I'm going, okay, must be a game getting ready to start or something. But just kept going, look at her. So I look out the front window. It's Billy in his underwear with his Burger King crown on going, and he's dancing. He was awesome. And everybody was like, they were honking to him. Like, they were encouraging him. Keep it up. Y'all, y'all. So there's Billy out there. He's had the crowd in his hand. It's like, and obviously, he takes after Brandy's side of the family. And so it's <laughs> get in the house, right? So he may not appreciate it when I told him at that time, but uh, when I show that video to his girlfriend later, he'll appreciate it. No, but uh, no, but it may glad that when you're doing something goofy or doing something dangerous and somebody yells at you, get out! Right? Is that a bad thing? Right? So not all pain is bad. Not all evil, uh, not all suffering is evil. Okay? And we see that. Okay? But then, see, that's what our world does. And that's why they come at you and I, the Christians, say, oh, ha, ha, we got you now. Why is there all this evil? First of all, you can't even answer, and you have no answer. Right? And then some people actually say, it's an illusion. Okay? But first, your misnomer is that it's all bad. It's not. And God is so powerful, he'll take even that which is headed towards this is bad, and he'll turn around for good. We'll get to that in a second. So number one, it's not always evil. Number two, suffering can develop your character and lead you to what? Maturity, okay? Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Okay, what do we see? The hoopamano, it's where we get hyper, hyper hoopa, a dermic needle under the skin, and that's literally the pressure that's in the Greek there. If you could pressure like a Atlas, the Greek guy, Atlas, who had the world on his shoulder. And so that's what it is. It's like, listen, God gives you that ability over time, right? And it takes a lot of strength, but you're able to, over an experience of time, you can handle this pressure. Ain't my glad, right? That you don't just crack the very time you go through a hard time. But where's this strength to keep going and keep moving forward and not quitting and not turning? Where's that? That's perseverance. How do you learn that? Through hard times. How many guys wish that when you decide, I'm going to get into shape, right? Right? Like Ryan, right? What do you think? Pumping iron, looking cool and all that neat stuff. Right? How many guys wish that you could just, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to start working out, right? And then you wake up the next day and I was, I was going to say and look like Pastor Billy, but I didn't want to. Yeah, <laughs> didn't want to discourage him. No, <laughs> so, no. and so, but you know, you get all, it doesn't work that way, right? How, how does it happen? Well, after you go to the gym one time, poof. No, you, that'd be kind of cool. Right? One week, and you're so buff, you're using car wax. Like, no, what? Okay, no, it takes what? To overtime, resistance, a lot of work. Right? And if you don't quit, what happens? Payoff comes. Right? Spiritually, that's what God is doing oftentimes with our troubles. Did you know that? We don't see the barbells. We don't see the weights. But every day, you get up, and you got to get up out of bed. I do. Okay, here it comes. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. You get the next day, and you may not see the benefits of that day. In fact, you're, you might spiritually ache that day. But you keep it up, and you don't quit. Guess what? You get to become strong in Christ. Anybody ever pray, oh, God, please make me into a strong Christian? What do you think he's doing? Now, is that bad? No, and that's what Paul's saying. It develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. You have to keep pumping spiritual iron so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything, Right? He's not trying to torture you. He's making you stronger. 
through your child, uh, trials, okay? Here's one, another analogy. Someone asked Michelangelo, how can you make, uh, take a huge chunk of granite and turn it into David? And he answered, the hunk of granite is David. I just have to remove everything that doesn't belong uh, there, okay? And so that's the analogy. How can God take a sinful, imperfect, flawed human being and make them uh, into a mature, complete, Christ-like person who's the very image of God on earth? What's God got to do? Break out the hammer, break out the chisel, start chipping off the rough edges. You ever feel like that? You feel like, God, you're, you're, you're tearing me down. I can't, I don't know how much more, whatever, and... Right? But no, he's, you, you, through the eyes of faith, you realize, listen, he, he's making me stronger. He's, he's, I mean, somewhere along the line, didn't you say, hey, I want to be more like Jesus? Well, how do you think that's going to happen? He's, he chisels away. He chisels away those, those rough edges, right? And he's, he's, and he's what? He's, he's trying to destroy you. He's, no, he's working on a, oh, a masterpiece. And he knows exactly where to chisel, what flaws to take care of and get them off. And over time, if you don't quit and you submit to his procedure you start to look more like Jesus. And when you look more like Jesus and speak more like Jesus and act more like Jesus, believe you me, it's a much better life. Anybody ever get to that point in the Christian, you think, man, I've come a long way. And Jesus, I'm looking. I mean, I'm just, God, so good to have me, I tell you what. Well, yeah, if you ever get there, you've got a lot of chunking to do. He's going to break out the chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, uh, but no, right? You think that you have, but it just, you never stop growing. God never stops chiseling, right? Okay, and you just keep moving forward. He's always going to be hacking on you, right? I think sometimes in the beginning, early on, it feels like he's got the chainsaw. But even when you get older and hopefully continue to grow in Christ, you're starting to look more like Christ, but there's always little things that he's going to be working on. Have you noticed that? Remember when you first got, got saved, right? It was the big ones, the big obvious ones, the seven deadly sins, right? I'm not going to drink, curse, or chew, or hang around with him that do. You know, I'm not, I mean, you know, it's the big easy ones. I'm not going to go get drunk anymore. I'm not going to go to bars anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do, all right, that's a big one. But then when you get older in Christ, he now goes inside of you. How are you doing with bitterness? How are you doing with impatience? Right? How you, right? And it goes into what I always had instructors say. He goes from the seven deadly to the six subtle. How's your attitude? right? And he starts chipping away. Now he's getting into the fine detail, but he never stops. But you need to understand when he's doing it, it's not because he hates us. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he's being mean. He's creating a masterpiece. Don't you want to be a masterpiece? Don't you want to get to know Jesus as much as you can? Don't you want to resemble him as much as you can before you see him face to face? Don't you want him to use you as much as possible before you get there? Yeah. Well, how does it happen? Oftentimes it's through challenges and that's his chisel. That's what he's doing. He knows it's awesome, right? Okay, let's move on. He goes and says, God has to remove everything that does not belong, and the process is often painful, but it's necessary. Now, this one, number three, death is not intrinsically evil, right? Stop and think about that. That's actually a good point. The death of bacteria is required to have fertile soil, okay? How many of you guys knew that tonight? Oh, one of you farmers, okay? The death of plants and animals are required for other animals to survive. Anybody besides me appreciate the massive amounts of barbecued pig and cow last week at the, at the potluck, right? Right? And we all know that that came from styrofoam. Where'd that come from? Anybody very appreciative? You want to have a moment of silence for pig and cow right now? No. All right. It had to come from somewhere. Anybody like eating meat? Right? No, he might like eating, period. Right? Right? Okay, well, guess what? It's got to come from somewhere, right? So it's not, it's not evil, right? 
And uh, so let's get moving on. Then he says, well, it, it, it's death of plants, but it also uh, would not be desirable given the earth's limited resources for there to be uh, no physical death among humans, right? So even though that wasn't God's original design, including eating animals, there was vegetarians, uh, eating meat happened after the flood, Genesis 9, and that's a whole other thing we dealt with in the creation study with about the different atmosphere effects on the human body and stuff, and there's apparently things that we need from animal meat, and people even who go on a strict, complete vegetarian diet still have to put things in their body to make up for what you're not getting from meat, right? because there's something that happened, etc., blah, 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 okay? So even though that's not the original design that we saw, it's still flipped around for good, okay? And with that, and the same thing, even though we were not designed by God to ever experience death, death entered because of one man, Adam, because of his sin, right? Okay, but uh, we know that uh, actually uh, death, if nobody ever died since Adam, okay, uh, guess what would happen to the population? Uh, it'd be really crowded, right? Very crowded. Okay, in fact, this actually is an argument uh, for a young earth, because if you do statistics and population statistics, and uh, if you go back and you take into account wars, famines, pestilence, and the natural course events, natural disasters, okay, if you go back roughly around 6,000 years ago, of course, you had a restart button 44, 4,500 years ago with the flood, right? Okay, so basically we're starting from eight people 44, 4,500 years ago, and if you do the math and you look at the population curve and statistic, it's about what we have today. Okay, problem is if you go back a million years ago or two million years ago and you take into account all that other stuff, the planet would be cut. We wouldn't have enough room on the planet. So that in itself, a population issue, kind of proves that. But death is not intrinsically evil, okay? And I think this is something that we Christians forget. I say it all the time. Did you know that this is not the place we've been saved for? Okay, Jesus Christ came to forgive us of our sins. He came to forgive us from hell, the penalty of our sins, but he came to give us what? Heaven, okay? And last time I checked, heaven is a much better place uh, than this place, okay? Slightly, okay? And so the point is, so in order to get to heaven, yeah, it's through Jesus, but what's the next step? If you're going to get there, you got one of two things is your ticket there. One, it's what we were hoping for, and that would be the rapture. Yay! Yay! Did you look up today? Could be today. Did you long for his appearing? Right? That's an easy crown to get. Okay, rapture, right? But if the rapture doesn't happen, guess what? One of these days, you're going to break down. You're not going to listen to Pastor Billy. You're going to eat a piece of chicken, and what comes? You're going to die. Okay? And you die, you go to limbo, and there's you got to purge off your own sin. No, that's a false teaching from the Catholic Church. Okay? Uh, when you die, you take a big, giant cosmic nap. <laughs> no, that's not what the Scripture means. When it says they fall asleep, it means they die. Right? So when you die, what happens? 2 Corinthians 5.8, absence from the body to be present with the Lord. Where's the Lord? And heaven, heaven's a horrible place. <laughs> no, it's a great place, right? So if we're going to make it to heaven, which I think hopefully we can agree is a great thing, uh, you're going to get there one of two. And if it ain't the rapture, it's going to be this guy, right? Is that bad? Is that evil? No. And that's a great comfort, right? As Christians, in fact, that's what the scripture says, that Jesus Christ came not only to undo the works of the evil one, the devil, okay? He came to set us free from those who were held slave to captive to being afraid of the fear of death. You don't have to be afraid of dying as a Christian. Where are we going? The last breath here is our first breath in heaven. In fact, I've shared stories before of actual Christians that when they die, okay, how many guys are going to try to make it the last thing you do? You guys are on schedule. That's great. Okay, that when you die, okay, sometimes God gives you a piece of it, so to speak, before there, right? Let me give you a couple examples. Dwight Moody, he woke from a sleep shortly before he died, and he says this, earth recedes, heaven opens for me. If this is death, it is sweet. 
There is no valley here. God is calling me. I must go. His son was actually by his bedside. And he says, no, Father, you're dreaming. If Moody replied, I am not dreaming. I've been within the gates. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. And he died, right? Uh, Augustus Toplady, he's a, a preacher, and he also, also, also wrote uh, Rock of Ages. He said, as he's dying, the consolations of God to such an unworthy wretch are so abundant that he leaves me nothing uh, to pray for but a continuance of them. I enjoy heaven already in my soul. And then he died. Lady Gnork, he said, if this is dying, it is, listen, listen to her words, it is the pleasantest thing imaginable. That's good news. John Pawson, he's another minister, he says, I'm not dying. He said, I know I'm dying, but my deathbed is a bed of roses. I have no thorns planted upon my dying pillow. In Christ, heaven has already begun. Adoniram Judson, he's a famous uh, missionary in Burma. He says, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Jordan. You want to show us the Canadian shuffle or what you did when you graduated? He's dying, and that's his attitude. Yeah, graduation. Wow. And then he says, I feel so strong in Christ. And he wants to be with Jesus. John Lith, he said, can this be death? Why, it is better than living. Tell them I die happy in Jesus. Martha McCracken. Now, that's a name, isn't it? McCracken. Yeah. She says, how bright the room, how full the angels. In fact, that actually happened to a lady uh, at another uh, church in Northern California I was pastoring at, and her name was Ann Delagana. And uh, she had diabetes and heart things, and we'd walk with her through all that stuff and heart uh, valve transplants and all that stuff. And uh, it was the wildest thing. Uh, she survived all that, and then she had a cat scratcher, and she came down with that flesh-eating disease. Can you believe that? Made it through all that, Right? And so she's in the hospital. If you know anything about that disease, it's not, it's very painful. And literally, it was just her stomach was just, they were just trying to, it was too, you know, it's in her, you know, if you get it on the foot, you can amputate, but it's in her stomach. And, you know, it's, so she's dying, right? And the last 36 hours before she died, here's what she was experiencing. Now, on the outside, you're thinking, man, this has got to hurt. But what she was, she, every time somebody would walk in the room, nurses, whatever, she would sit there and she says, can't you hear the music? Don't, don't you see the angels? This is beautiful. And she was in a whole other world for the last 36 hours in the midst of that. I, anyway, that was true. I've been there. Mary Frances says, oh, I wish I could tell you the joy I possess. The Lord does shine with such power upon my soul. Sir David Brewster, he's the scientist and the inventor of the kaleidoscope. So when you get to heaven, you can say, dude, thank you for getting me to waste five bucks at Dollar Tree. And I thought it was supposed to be for a dollar, but it was five bucks. And I, it was cool for about 14 seconds. And then I put it down and it stayed on the shelf and I sold it for 50 cents at a garage sale. The kaleidoscope, you ever get one of those babies? How fun, how much fun did that last for you? Three seconds. See, as bad as I thought, yeah. But anyway, so this guy, he invented it, right? And he says, I will see Jesus. I shall see him as he is. I've had the light for many years. Oh, how bright it is. I feel so safe and satisfied, right? Yeah, it's just so evil for God to let his children go in this manner. It's just rotten. It's just, no. And oftentimes he gives them a taste of heaven before they get there. And this one, this is a, a Muslim woman. Her uh, child had died at 16 years of age, and she goes up to the Christian missionary, and she says, what did you do to our daughter? Uh, she says, we didn't do anything, but the mother persists. She says, oh, yes, you did. She died smiling. Our people don't die like that. And the girl, apparently, true story, had found Jesus Christ, accepted him as a Savior, and only a few months before. 
right? Profound witness to that. And finally, a Chinese communist to whom many Christians have been executed said to a pastor, I've seen many of you die. The Christians die in a different way. What is your secret? Yeah, it's because oftentimes God gives us a taste before there. But again, we, not, not, we don't have to be afraid of dying, right? I like uh, Robbie Zacharias, he brought the point up one time. He said, you, you got to realize, you got to put yourself in Lazarus' shoes. You know, the, the Lazarus, not the rich man Lazarus, the parable, Luke 16. But Lazarus, Mary Martha's brother, right? And he died, right? And he was in the grave for four days. You know why it was four days? Right? Jewish custom believed uh, a superstition, but they believed in that day that the spirit of a person hovered the body for three days. And so there might have been a chance. Jesus waited, uh-uh, when even your superstitious hope is gone. Then he shows up. Isn't that cool? Nice little nugget there, right? So he shows up, right? He's already got the grave clothes on. He's all wrapped up, if you know anything like that. And so Jesus, he comes forward, right? And so he literally had experience. He went to Abraham's bosom at that point in the paradise, right, at that point, and uh, now when you and I die, absent from the body, straight to be with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but anyway, so he, he really died, he experienced death, right, and then Jesus, four days later, calls him back, and it's back to life on earth, right, now, later if you read in the scripture, I forget where it's at, but it's in the gospel, it's just a little line there, and it talks about how after Lazarus raised from the dead, and Jesus, they're eating, having a great time partying, because this was awesome, people were blown away, and rightly so, right? This, we know this guy was dead, in fact, he was dead for four days, it was impossible, right? And then it said, like, the Pharisees and the scribes or whatever, they looked for a way to take him out, because it was too powerful a witness, because how do you deny this? This guy's alive, and Jesus did it. Can't have that, right? Okay, but... He, he goes and he extrapolates on that verse. He goes, well, wait a second. So that means that somebody was after Lazarus to kill him again, right? And he says, can you imagine Lazarus' attitude this time, though? They come up to you, hey, you better knock it off talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. Really? <laughs> yeah, bring it on, right? I mean, you talk about really having no fear, right? Because he's been there, done that, right? But as Christians, we know that we don't have to be afraid of that. Right? Death. What death is not intrinsically evil. Okay? It's a side effect of that, but through Jesus Christ, we've been given the way out and we're headed to heaven. That's awesome. Okay? Top of the next page. Okay, number four. But what about the death of a child? Right? Sometimes that'll be thrown in our face, right? What kind of a God is this? That he'd allow that little child to go through all this and well, let's take a look at that. If God is good and can do anything, then how Christian do you explain the death of a child? Okay, it's actually a good, good question. First of all, let's flip it around. Before we get into the Christian response, okay, if you're an atheist, if you're an evolutionist, okay, uh, I'll answer yours, but uh, flip the script. Um, how do you answer that? Oh, that's right. Uh, if there is no God, there is no explanation. And I'm the goofball. If there is no God, there is no answer. I'm the one with the problems, you know? Is, would it be right for me at that point to do what you just did to me? Ah, ha, ha, we got you, atheist. Right? You have no explanation, no answer. And if there is no God, when a child dies, listen, there is no hope for the family to ever see that child again. How do you comfort somebody? Have you ever noticed that? The longer you get to be as a Christian and you go to funerals, have you ever gone to a non-Christian funeral and you look in the people's eyes and they haven't the hope of Christ. Doesn't your heart break? They don't have what we have, right? And if, if God's not real, if, if, if you really you want to believe in evolution, is that, okay, that's your game, that's your thing, right? I'll give you evidence to the contrary, but 
What a, no wonder people are so hopeless. No wonder people are so afraid of dying and death, right, and do crazy things. However, from the Christian point of view, when a child dies, the family can still have hope, peace, strength, and comfort. Here's four reasons why. Number one, A, God created, is your first blank there, God created the child's life, and he has the power to give the child life again. The Bible tells about a man named Lazarus who died. His sister Martha went to Jesus and said, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will, no maybe about it, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, no, no you're, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will what? You will live. Not maybe. You will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Right? So God has the power to give life. Guess what? And this is what you see in Jesus when he's walking around. He didn't just make the water into wine. He didn't just walk on water. Right? He didn't just feed a whole bunch of people out of hardly nothing. A couple different times. Thousands of people. All right? He raised people from the dead, right? So the comfort is, listen, God, yeah, your child may not be here, but God can bring your child to life again. For us, what we're looking at, God has the power to change that. Now, isn't that, a, isn't that much better than, sorry, I have no explanation, no answer, and no hope for you? That's an atheist, and I'm the one with the problem. That's just part one. Number two, when a child dies, he or she goes to heaven, which is a what? Better place for our, than our world, okay? Better place is your blank there. Now, very quickly, let's just take a look at some biblical characteristics that we have of heaven. Heaven's the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of angels. It's a heavenly country. It's a holy place. It's eternal paradise. It's a place where the streets are made of gold. The gates are made of pearls. The foundations are precious gems. It's a place of eternal rest, eternal joy, and flip it around. You'll never experience this again. It's a place without wickedness, without darkness, without sin, without tears, or mourning, or crying, or pain, or death. It's a place of absolute purity. It's a place filled with the glory of God, and it's everlasting. So guess what? When your child dies and they go to heaven, where do they go? That place. And as a parent, what do you hope for your child? The best. How do you get any better than that? To know that your child is in that place. Now that's hope. That strength. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me flip around. Uh, what's your explanation again? Oh, I have no explanation. I have no answer, and there is no hope. Again, I'm not suggesting we do this, but could we not flip it around and do what was done to us? Ha, 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 I got you now, atheists. What kind of an answer do you have? You have nothing, right? Oh, but it gets even better because you're thinking, well, wait a second. How do we know the child is in heaven? Well, let's examine that biblically. Uh, the Apostle Paul stated, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body... That don't mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two, right? I, I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is way worse off because I'm afraid of dying. No, because it's much better. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He got a little taste of it too, right? Wow, right? But heaven is far better, and we just saw those things. Now, how do you know the of a child, right? Well, let's take a look at a couple of passages here. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 1. Open your Bibles, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is where the theological term comes in, the age of accountability. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Right on. This is typically where, the, the uh, unfortunately, the enthusiasm starts to wane in your yearly adventure to say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And you make it through Genesis and Exodus 
Leviticus. Well, Deuteronomy, I heard this already before. That's what it means. Deuteronomy, Namas, second telling of the law. You have heard it before. But anyway, keep reading. But anyway, so right here is a great nugget right in the first chapter. Okay, it talks about what's called the theological term, the age of accountability. Right? How do we know that if a child, early young child, who doesn't know right from wrong, right? How do we know they actually went to heaven? What about the babies who were murdered in the womb? They're real life babies. How do we know they went to heaven? Well, let's take a look. This is just one passage uh, dealing with this. Deuteronomy chapter 1, and uh, let's take a look at uh, 39 here. And he says this, as we get there, he says, uh, And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who what? Who do not yet know good from bad, i.e. right and wrong, they what? They're going to suffer judgment like the rest of you? No. They didn't know right from wrong, good or bad. They will enter the land, I give to. Uh, I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. So God didn't hold the little kids who were young enough to not know right from wrong, good or bad, because, again, how could you hold them accountable when they didn't know? God's just. He's righteous, right? So that wouldn't seem to be, quote, fair if he, they, what did they do, Right? Well, and I've actually heard some people say, well, you know, maybe if they're aborted, you know, they didn't have a chance to respond to Jesus, and so they're going to hell. What? What kind of a God is that? You know, as crazy as that sounds, okay? No. If the, if right, and here's, here's the deal. Then people want to, and I think now, now you're going too far, right? And they'll say, well, and that magical age of accountability is 13. No, it's 8. No, it's 6. No. And my thing is, listen, every child's different. Have you noticed that? So I don't think there is a magical age. Some kids are, kids are more mature early on, some later. But, but there's at some point you know when what you're doing is wrong. You're accountable. You know, maybe it is four. Maybe it's three. I don't know. Right? Maybe it is six for some. I don't know. But, and that's the urgency uh, that we need to share the gospel even with kids. And that's why kids' ministry is so important, right? Okay? But that's one accountability. But what is it? So let's go look at another passage, and uh, we'll move on. 2 Samuel 12. And this is where we have the account of David. He lost a child, all right? And so what's David say about that, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you find 1 Samuel, what do you do? Okay, then you keep going. That'll work. And, uh, but to 2 Samuel 12 and verses 21 through 23. I might grab a little bit more than that, though, as we grab the context of what's going on here. And uh, uh, let's go on in... Uh, uh, there we go. Yeah, let's start with that verse uh, 18, it looks like. 18. And on the seventh day, uh, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him uh, that the child was dead, for they thought, man, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, and he wouldn't even listen to us. And how, how can we tell him now the child is dead? He may, he may do something desperate, right? Get in trouble. Bad news. Well, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. And then he said, is, is the child dead? And yes, they said, he, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he'd washed uh, put on lotions and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. And then he went to his own house, and uh, at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And the servants asked him, what? Why are you acting this way? I mean, while the child was alive, you fasted, you wept, right? And now the child's dead, you get up and eat. And what's David say? While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. And I thought, well, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, can't change it, can you? He says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Listen, I will what? David speaking. I will go to him 
but he will not return to me. Because once you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell, and do people come back? No, right? So the only way for David to meet up with this kid again is for David to die and go be with him. So then the logical extrapolation is, where do we assume the King David's in? Hell? No. Heaven. So here David makes an obvious proclamation that I'm going to go see my child again. And this was a young child. Obviously didn't know good from bad. Just young, you know, days old, right? So again, that's where we get. So isn't that a nice thing to be able to share? Not pie in the sky, but biblical truth to somebody who lost a child, right? And it's, it's biblical truth, right? God has the power to take what you see here and bring to life again, number one. Number two, a child gets to go to be with God who's in heaven. And that's way better than here, right? Number three, okay, we can have that guaranteed if your child is that. Now, again, that's the age of accountability, and we don't know where that's at. But isn't that wonderful? I, I've actually had to do that. Once again, back in Northern California, uh, the hardest funeral I ever had to do was uh, a young couple, and they were having trouble for years having children. And next thing you know, after years and years of trying, <clears throat> twins. So I was like, woohoo, right? Um, I think it was uh, 20 weeks or something like that into it. Uh, went into, had some complications, and babies were premature. One died. And having to go to the graveside to do that funeral, and there was a little white casket. That was, wow. What do you do? And I began to preach through what David went through and identify with the grief. But here's the hope. You will see your child again. 100%. You are a born-again Christian. You will see your child again. This is just a temporary goodbye. It's not just true. But I'll take that any day of the week over this. Sorry, have no explanation, no answer, and you have no hope. Have a nice day. And we're the ones with the problem. Do you see how when you examine this topic of evil, suffering, all this stuff, death, all that stuff, from a Christian point of view, we not only have a good biblical explanation, but a great philosophical, logical, and dare I say emotionally satisfying explanation. Can you remember next time when somebody asked that, flip it around, can I hear yours? right? Okay? It's a very important topic, okay? And that's what it says. Number C, God can comfort the family of the lost child, right? He can comfort as you're blank there, right? To the family of the loved ones, God can uh, be the comforter and the healer. David himself, who lost a child, wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, okay? Uh, God, 1 Corinthians 1 says, God is the God of all comfort, and he comforts us in our trials so we can turn, turn around and comfort those with the same comfort that we receive from God, right? And so this is comforting news that you could tell uh, to this person, okay? With that, and it's great news. Uh, does God, how, God of all, how does he know? How does he, excuse me? Does God know what it's like to lose a child? Who better to give comfort? He sacrificed his child. He didn't lose his child. He sacrificed. He knows what it's that. And his word can bring comfort. D, on the top of the next page, the Bible promises us, as you're blank there, promises us that the separation caused by death is only temporary for those who are Christians. 
Okay? There's a point there. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. No, it's not that. It's a euphemism for death. Okay? Or to grieve like the rest of men who have what? No hope. Why do you have no hope? Because here's your explanation. Oh, I have no explanation, no answer, and no hope. Not for us, though. It hurts. But it's not the end of the story. Death does not end with a period. It ends with a comma, one of two places. And if you have a child before the age of accountability, and if you have a loved one who's in Christ, guess what? Heaven becomes the greatest family reunion of all. It's going to be awesome, right? Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant of those who fall asleep, to grieve like those who have no hope. Uh, We believe that Jesus died, rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up, harpazo in the Greek, uh, which is the Latin translation, uh, or the Greek is harpazo into the Latin rapture, where we get the English word rapture. That's where the rapture comes from. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, freak out, run to the hills, and cry. I'm sorry, wrong translation. What? What are you supposed to do with these words? That Christ is coming back to get us, we're going to heaven, and it's going to happen either at the rapture or death? Encourage. You betcha. Encourage one another's words. I'm going to close with a story. I've shared it before. But I don't know if I've ever shared the context. It's a story from uh, Peter Marshall. You guys familiar with him? Uh, a preacher uh, in our country. And uh, he actually, uh, uh, during uh, when World War II broke out, he was asked to give an encouraging sermon uh, to the cadets at West Point who were getting ready to be shipped over. And there was a lot of concern, a lot of fear. And knowing that a lot of these guys aren't going to make it back. And so he got up there, true story, and to encourage them and to witness to them, because if there were certain soldiers who weren't saved, you better get right with God before you leave. This is crunch time. But a lot of them, even with that, and that was even used as a tool, the fear of dying, or possibly dying, to share with them that even if that does happen for you, and even if you're on the battlefield, and even if that happens to you, if you're a Christian... You don't have to be afraid. And then he tells this true story to these soldiers to witness to them and to comfort their heart that if they're a Christian, you can do what you need to do and not be afraid. He said this, In a home of which I know, a little boy, the only son, was ill with an incurable disease. And month after month, the mother had tenderly nursed to him and read to him and played with him, hoping to keep from him the dreadful finality of the doctor's diagnosis that the boy was surely to die. So one day his mother was reading him a story, and after she closed the book, her little son sat silent for an instant, deeply stirred, and, and then she asked a question weighing on his childish heart. He said, Mama, what's it like to die? Mama, does it hurt? So quick tears sprang to her eyes, and she fled to the kitchen, supposedly to tend to something on the stove, and she knew it was a question with deep significance, and she knew it had to be answered satisfactorily. So she breathed a, her, uh, a quick prayer to the Lord that he would keep her from breaking down before her son, and that she would be able to tell him the answer. And the Lord did tell her immediately she knew how to explain it to him. And she said, Kenneth, that was her son. She said, Kenneth, do you remember that when you were a tiny boy and how you used to play so hard all day that when night came, you were too tired even to undress and you would tumble into your mother's bed and fall asleep? 
She said, now that wasn't your bed. That was not where you belonged, if you will. You would only stay there for a little while. And much to your surprise, you would wake up and find yourself in your own bed in your own room. You were there because someone had loved you and taken care of you. Your father had come with his big, strong arms, and he carried you away. She said, Kenneth, darling, death is just like that. We just wake up some morning to find ourselves in the other room, our room where we belong, because the Lord Jesus loved us and died for us. The lad's shiny face looked up into hers, told her that the point had gone home, and there, there would be no more fear, and he never questioned again. And several weeks later, he fell asleep, just as she said, and he was carried into his own room by his heavenly father. That's the story he shared to these young cadets getting ready to face the horrors of World War II, not only to lead them to Christ, but ultimately when you get into positions like that, no atheists in foxholes, you need to know for sure that you're right with God. And if you're going to die doing what you got to do, that you're just going to go to the other room and God's going to take care of you. What a message of strength and conviction for those who are getting ready to face death for our freedom. Almost like Memorial Day is coming up. So. Interesting. I'll take that any day of the week over. What? What's the alternative? I'm sorry. I have no explanation, no answer, no hope. See you guys. Be encouraged. And we're the wackos, right? I love teaching on this stuff. This is one of the big ones. <laughs> but when you examine it, just like the other skepticism, flip it around. You not only have a fantastic answer that's true, but you expose you have nothing, right? And is that really what you want to bank on? Amen? Lord willing, next week we'll continue on and take a look at even more reasons why God is doing some great things, even through our difficulties. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay? Well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. 
Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest, we've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn, we, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it, and a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon 
and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.